Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm the host of the show. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the ascension of Jesus, which is not a topic that gets a lot of play in, in most places, but um, it's an important topic. It's something that we absolutely need to remember, need to think about, um, and need to understand the significance of the ascension of Jesus. And so here we are. It is Ascension Sunday, or it's the Sunday after the Ascension is a better way to say that. Uh, we're a week away from Pentecost. We're still in some, some modified lockdown mode <clears throat> over the COVID virus. And so continue to pray for, uh, for that to be uh, dealt with by God, by the people that are, have been raised up for the purpose of, of dealing with this problem. And so um, our prayers continue to be with those who have lost loved ones during this period of time. And, and we look to the resurrection the coming again, actually, of Jesus to bring an end <clears throat> to all disease and all suffering. And so, so here we are today, and, and the lessons for the day are the 47th Psalm, which begins wonderfully. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a cry of joy. <clears throat> it's the place we need to be, and it continues on that sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is King of all the earth, sing praises with all your skill. It's time. God's people need to gather for worship. It's, it's time to come out and to worship him because of all that he has done. So it's time for us. We need uh, change. We need to get back to the business of worshiping and praising him and, and to manifesting his glory in the world. So that's the first <clears throat> lesson today is in the second lesson the old testament lesson is ezekiel 39 21 to 29 and what that's about is is that god's announcing the end of his judgment on his people who he's been sent into exile in babylon and so it's announcing the end of the exile and the regathering of the people into the land that he had given them so it's sort of a recapitulation of all things it's it's the restoration of God's people. It's the restoration of all things for God's people, but it's but it's the judgment is passing from judgment on the house of Israel to judgment on the nations. And so God announces that judgment on the nations in order to bring back God's people. But, it, but he says again, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt treacherously with me. So I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and I hid my face from them. So the nations will know that he was their God and that they were brought under judgment for their sins against them, for the fact that they dealt treacherously with him, and so therefore he hid his face from them. In other words, they cried out to him, but his face was turned against them. They heard nothing from him. But then he says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. And so it's in the bringing back of his people that they know, he says, that I'm the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. So God's known to the people 
in two ways, right? That he sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. So they know that he's both a God of judgment, that his holiness matters, and those who are tasked with uh, upholding his name cannot act in ways that bring disgrace to his name without fear of judgment and punishment. But then, because he is a God of grace as well, not just judgment, but grace, he assembles them back into their own land, not because of anything they did, but because he decided the time had come to bring them back, and he loves his covenant people endlessly and eternally. So that's the Ezekiel passage, and then the first Peter passage is 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, and he's speaking about you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus promised that if he was rejected, then we would be rejected as well. And But he goes on to say, Peter does, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian is the name Peter's speaking on there. So, the time to judge, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter's picking up that same theme from Ezekiel, that is that judgment begins at the household of God. But that doesn't mean that God has rejected his people. No, he's punishing his people, judging his people for their sin. We received that for our sins. And he said, judgment's going to begin at the household of God because we're the ones who bear the name of Christ. And so for us to be judged is exactly right because we are the beloved of God and we will be the ones who will be restored. So then the gospel lesson today is John 17, 1 to 11. And it's Jesus' high priestly prayer after um, the Passover meal has ended. And he said, it's time, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so, here we go again with this idea of, are we all children of God? And, and what Jesus is saying is, is that, that he was given authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you've given him. Those are two different things. And he says, this is the eternal life, <clears throat> that they know you, the one only true God in Jesus Christ in your sins. He says that. When he says Jesus Christ, that's not his name, remember. That's a title. And so when he adds the word Christus, what he's adding is the title of Messiah, the anointed one. That's a big statement. And he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And that's the part that I really want to focus on today. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, I've known that before. I've experienced that before in your presence, and it's time. I'm ready. I want to. I long to come back to you. But in here on earth, 
there's a glory that needs to be manifested as well. And Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And then finally, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There's a time of trouble and testing coming, and we know that because Jesus says it to Peter, that Satan has requested that he sift you like wheat, and you're going to deny me three times. The time of testing will be relatively short. It'll be only a few days, but then forever. And we know that it was because the church was persecuted right from the start and forever, and the disciples themselves were persecuted, and many died because of the name of Jesus. But Peter says there's only one name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. It's the name of Jesus that's important. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I, I, as When my kids were little, I can remember <clears throat> I had a business partner one time who, when he would get upset, he would say Jesus Christ in a way that was angry at expressing his anger at something. Does that make any sense? Have you ever heard anybody say Buddha or any other religious figure's name in that way? No, is the answer. Why did it become an epithet? How could that possibly have happened? How could the name of Jesus ever become that word used in that way? It makes no sense at all except for the fact that that name has power. And there's only one name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. And so when we say that that way, and you hear it all the time, we're raining down curses on ourselves when we use his name in that way. To use his name as a curse and an epithet is to cheapen the name of Jesus in society. And so we as Christians have an obligation to raise up and glorify and magnify that name in word and deed in society that it might become the most honored name because it is the most honored name. The Lord saves Yeshua, Christos, the anointed Savior of mankind. And so, we look and we say, so why is the ascension important? What's the point of all that? It's you know a bunch of guys standing on a mountain watching Jesus ascend into the heavens, and that's the end of the story, except for angels come, and they say, why are you looking into heaven? Get busy. He'll come again in the same way that he left you, but get busy about the task that he gave you to do, which was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in my name and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Go get busy. Don't stand there and look into the heavens. You have work to do. You were given a job. 
And the good news is Jesus promised something else. He didn't just give the commandment. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we look to heaven because that's where Jesus went, and that's how he'll return. But we were given work to do here on earth. We can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So it's time to be about the work of Christ. But it doesn't mean the ascension is unimportant. It's, it's an enormously important thing. It's the answer to Jesus' prayer, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is all about, ultimately, about metamorphosis. It's about transformation. It's about seeing things from a heavenly perspective. Because what we see is, is that on earth, Jesus was rejected by men, cursed, thought to be under the curse because he fulfilled the, the, the cursed is he who hangs on a tree from Leviticus. And so from an earthly perspective, what we see is a man accursed under the law because he hung on a tree. What we see from a heavenly perspective, though, is something radically different because we can see the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, and that is this, Revelation 5. So in Revelation 4, what we see is John's taken in the Spirit. This is after the, the letters to the churches in Revelation. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet or a shofar said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated upon the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like a crystal, and there were four living creatures on each side of the throne, full of eyes in front and behind. And then he goes on to describe those things, and then the four living creatures are full of eyes all around and with them, and all day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So that's the scene and the setting that immediately precedes what happens after the disciples watch Jesus going up into the clouds. And then John sees that that one seated on the throne has a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. 
And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Does this one, this elder, not know the difference between a lion and a lamb? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, I looked, and in the midst of the elders, I saw a lamb standing, looking as though it were slain. All of that says things aren't what they seem. We have to look with spiritual eyes to see the truth. We have to see that that lamb is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. We can't let the appearance of a lamb fool us from understanding this is a lion. And we can't let the appearance of looking like it was slain take away from the fact that it's standing. It looked like it was slain, but it was standing. It was alive. It was vibrant, and it was strong. And then he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What a precious vision that is. A lamb going to this one who is seated on the throne and taking that scroll and then heaven explodes. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the poor living creature said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And there it is. There's the answer to Jesus' prayer, the end of the ascension, what happens after the fact. And so it's a recapitulation of all things. It goes back to before the world existed. This is what it looked like. And now he comes as a lamb, looking like it was slain to ransom people and to make them a kingdom and priests to the one seated on the throne. It's a whole series of metamorphoses that happen. Jesus <clears throat> comes to earth one through whom all things were created and in whom all things have their being. He comes to earth taking on the form of flesh, becoming like those whom he created in order 
the saints. It's the one mission. To glorify the Father and in so doing to save those who were created in his image. And then he takes that into heaven in the form of a lamb looking like it was slain. He goes from rejection by men, ridicule on the cross, to that glorification in Revelation 5, where he's the only one on heaven, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, who is worthy to approach that throne, take those scrolls, and open those seals. Those are the scrolls of judgment on the earth for the sin of those he came to redeem and save. And all glory in heaven is given to him. And what it says there, did you hear that? Is is that the worship of every created being turns to Jesus and proclaims his name and finds him to be the only one worthy of that worship, the only one worthy along with the one seated on the throne. It's either a huge moment of blasphemy or it is the greatest truth ever to be known to equate those two. Jesus did it in his life. He said, I and the Father are one. Praise that we may be one, even as he and the Father are one. So from rejection to celebration and exaltation and glorification happens. And what it means on earth is, is, is that we, are, we change everything. Remember in, in Genesis 1, that there's this chaotic sort of existence initially, but the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And out of that then becomes order. We see it again in the story of Noah, where he sends out the dove, and the dove hovers over the water. And when that happens, God begins to restore order to the world. The, the flood waters recede. The land becomes dry again. It becomes fertile and productive after the judgment of God. And you'll see it again in Revelation. It's the same thing happens. After he brings down judgment on the world, what does he do? A new creation comes down out of heaven, one that hasn't been tainted by sin. And so from chaos to order, and that's the way the message of Jesus was, is to move us from chaos to order in the same way that Noah's mission was to do that. Everything in the Christian's life, we're supposed to see everything differently than we did before we knew Jesus because we have a new life. We've been given a new life. We have died with him in baptism. We've been raised with him as well. We're to be like the disciples who were called from fear and trembling and hope at the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Our despair one of the my favorite lines in any hymn is that our despair was turned to blazing joy with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ in our day. And then that throne of judgment, the one with rumblings and peals of lightning and all that, that actually is an image from the Exodus when the elders are called up onto Mount Sinai. That's exactly what Sinai looked like. And there was a throne there. And it looked exactly the same. And there was a sea of crystal 
in front of that throne. It's the same throne that Moses and the elders saw in the Exodus. But now there are others seated around that throne. And they give worship to the one on the throne. That's the throne of judgment. And it's been replaced with the throne of grace because of the Lamb who is seated at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us, pleads our case. We have a representative there who has been found worthy, who sits before that throne at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us continually. And it's our joy, it's our obligation to worship Him, to praise Him, and to proclaim Him. He said He gave the words that He was given by the Father, He gave to the disciples, and then they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And Jesus prayed for them, prayed for us, who has, whom he has redeemed. And so in our worship, we say, lift up your hearts. And we say, we lift them up to the Lord. So the ascension is important. Because if he's not ascended to the Father, then the work is not complete until he comes before that throne and takes those scrolls with the seals. Then makes possible the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in order that we may be one. It's not a fond hope. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to make us one as he and the Father are one. But if he be not ascended, then the Spirit can't come. But when the Spirit comes, he brings us into the kingdom of God, makes us on earth into those who worship as those in heaven do, makes us capable of proclaiming the word of God faithfully in word and in deed, and makes the church one as the visible presence of God on earth until his coming again. So it's time to worship, church. It's time to worship. It's time to worship Christians. It's time for Christians to come together and be as one, to seek that unity in the same way Jesus sought unity with the Father, sought to glorify him. And it's our joy to attempt to live that out in such a way that we, individually and collectively, bring glory and honor to him. Let us worship with the passion of heaven. Let us proclaim him and take joy in him in the same way that all of heaven does in response to his prayer to glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us now glorify him even on earth as the church, the visible presence of God's continuing concern and love for his creation. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm glad you're here to join today, and I hope the Lord continues to bless you and give you all that you need in this time, and that he brings you into deeper fellowship with him through the blood of his Son and the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in your life.